0: coming at you from Grand Rapids, Michigan. It's 3.33 a.m., and I've got myself a nice warm cup of joe. My producer Ted's over there. Hey, Ted. And uh, you're listening to A Wound, Winkle, Time. Welcome. Now, before we jump into it, I thought I would clear up what has become a point of confusion for many listeners. If you thought that the title of this podcast, A Wound, Winkle, Time, was a pun off of the classic 1962 novel by Madeleine Longley, A Wrinkle in Time, then you'd be correct. So go ahead and uh, give yourself a pat on the back for getting that right. Good job. And if you didn't get that right, well, then don't worry about it. There are no judgments here. This is a safe place. And uh, frankly, it's a little too early in the morning to be passing any judgments. Isn't that right, Ted? (laughs) Okay, Ted's nodding. Thanks, Ted. And for those of you listeners who are just joining us for the first time today, I thought I would give a brief rundown of what this podcast is, what it's about, and uh, who who it's for, really. I guess you could say it all started about, oh, I don't know, about eight and a half years ago, when I was just a young sound engineer on the other side of a very popular radio show. And it came to my attention that there was a young woman in France who was having some difficulty falling asleep, and... uh Instantly, the idea hit me. Hey, why don't I start my own radio show? And maybe, if she hears it, it'll help her fall asleep. So fast forward six and a half years, and we became a nationally syndicated late night radio show. And only recently have we been picked up by NPR. And now we're doing this whole podcast thing. I know it's the new craze, um, and we could do it whenever we wanted, but. Really, it just didn't seem right to not do it at 3.30 like we've been doing for so many years. And Ted's nodding again, so I'm glad he agrees with me there. Okay, I've got a few rather interesting and really quite funny selections for you today. And these come from a Soviet writer named Mikhail Zoshenko, and he was writing in the 30s. 40s and even into the 50s, um, and he's best known for his very short satirical works, some of which are no longer than two or three pages tops, and they're very revealing about how your average Soviet citizen was living at the time. A lot of his stories deal with life in the communalkas, the communal houses, or just dealing with the everyday absurdities of being a good citizen, a good party member or even not being a party member, and what a horrible thing that was at the time. One of the things that strikes many readers of Zoshenko for the first time, if they, if they aren't familiar with him, is just how anti-regime he tends to come off as. He seems like he should have been purged or thrown in prison, or at least told to shut up a few times, but quite the opposite is true. He represents one of the great paradoxes of Soviet life in the 40s and 50s, and he was wildly popular, despite his anti-party, anti-Soviet sentiments. Now, supposedly, he was able to get away with this because Stalin, reportedly, loved his short stories. He would read them and laugh and laugh and laugh, and because of that, he basically gave Zoshenko a pass and extended his arm of protection over him so that he can continue writing these hilarious little vignettes describing um, what Soviet life was like. Now, Zoshenko is very interesting because he is not like your average Soviet writer at the time. There's no socialist realism going on here, and there's no callbacks to the great past of the golden age of Russian literature, and this was all very deliberate, He said many times that he wrote in simple sentences using very easy vocabulary so that the poor, the uneducated, that Soviet working class that was just really coming up and learning to read, would be able to read his works and enjoy them and maybe laugh a bit at their own lives along with it. Now, what I'll be reading from today is from what I think is probably the only collection of Mikhail Zoshenko's works in English. It's called Nervous People and Other Satires, and it's actually a, a pretty impressively thick little volume. It collects oh, something like 30 of his short stories and then a couple of his uh, longer stories, and it's really as good as you're going to get in English um, for Zoshenko at this point, unless you can, can read the Russian. And I know in this show, we usually like to read two medium-length stories, but... Considering what Zoshenko is famous for and to kind of give you a taste of his style, I thought I would read a, a couple more. They're, they're not going to be too long, but I hope you enjoy them. Now, the first story I've chosen for you today is called An Incident on the Volga. And, of course, that's on the Volga River. To begin with, we'll tell you about a certain amusing little mishap This mishap led to a group of vacationers receiving a moral jolt as a result of a certain misunderstanding. This is how it happened. The story is true. During the early years of the Revolution, when life had become more settled and wonderful steamships, with first-class cabins and hot meals served to the passengers had begun to sail up and down the Volga, a group of vacationing citizens, six office workers, of whom I was one, set out for holiday on the Volga. Everyone had advised us to take a cruise on the Volga. It was a wonderful place for a rest. Nature, the banks, the water, the food, and the cabins. And so the group of office workers, tired out, so to speak, by the revolutionary turmoil, set out to take a rest. We got on a wonderful first-class ship called the Comrade Penkin. We got interested in who this Penkin might have been. They told us they thought he worked in the water transport division. Actually, it was all the same to us. And, of course, we set sail on this unknown comrade. We came to Samara. Our group disembarked and went to look over the city. We're looking around. Suddenly we hear some kind of whistle. Someone says, Schedules aren't very exact nowadays. Our pankin might just up and leave. Let's go back. And so, having more or less looked the city over, we went back. We came to the dock and saw that our ship wasn't there. It had left. Shouts and cries arose. One of us shouts, Shouts, I left my papers and my pants on board. Others shout, What about us? We've lost our baggage and our money. What shall we do? It's awful. I said, Let's get on this other boat that happens to be here and go back. We look and see that there is a Volga steamship called the Storm tied up at the dock. In plaintive voices, we ask the bystanders whether it's been a long time since the Panking sailed. Perhaps we could catch up with it by land. The bystanders say, Why catch up with it? There's the Penkin. But now it's called the Storm. It's the former Penkin. The name has been painted over. We were really overjoyed at this news. We dashed aboard this boat of ours, and all the way to Saratov we didn't set foot on shore. We were afraid. And incidentally, we asked the captain the reason for this amusing event, and the dispatch with which it was carried out. The captain says, "'You see, the ship got that name partly by mistake.' Hankin works in the Water Transport Division, but he didn't quite live up to his obligations. At present, he is under arrest for having exceeded his authority. We got a telegram to paint out his name, so we go to the storm. Then we said, oh, so that's it, and laughed nonchalantly. We arrived at Saratov, and our group disembarked to see the city. We didn't hang around there for very long either. We went to a booth and bought some cigarettes. We looked over a couple of buildings. We go back, and again find our ship, the storm, missing. And we see another ship there in its place. Of course, we weren't as scared as we had been in Samara. We figured there was still a chance. Maybe they painted over the name again. But nevertheless, some of us got very frightened. We run up closer and ask the bystanders, Where's the storm? The bystanders say, This is the storm right here, formerly the Penkin. And now, starting at Saratov, they're calling it the Korolenko." We say, how come they're so generous with their paint? The bystanders say, we don't know. Ask the bosun. The bosun says, we've had a hot time with these names. They named her Pankin by mistake. As for Storm, that was a name with little current significance. To some extent, it was lacking in principle. A storm is simply a phenomenon of nature. It conveys nothing to the mind or the heart. The captain got a dressing down for it. That's why they painted it over. We were overjoyed again and said... Oh, so that's it, and boarded the ship Korolenko, and sailed off. But the boatswain said to us, Be sure you don't get scared in Astrakhan if you come back and find another name. But we said, No, that wouldn't be too likely, since Korolenko is a famous writer. In fact, we got to Astrakhan safely, and from there we traveled on dry land. We never knew the subsequent fate of the ship, but you can be sure that the name stayed the way it was, forever and ever. The more so since Korolenko was dead whereas Pankin was alive, and this was the basic shortcoming which led to his names being replaced. So it appears that being alive, so to speak, can even be a shortcoming in people. No, pardon me, it's really impossible to understand what the essence of the shortcoming is. On the other hand, sometimes it would seem more advantageous for us not to be alive. But on the other hand, so to speak, no, no, thank you very much. It's a doubtful sort of advantage. We'd rather not. But still... Being alive, in that sense, seems to be a relative shortcoming. So, as you can see, it's pretty short, pretty fun, and the the point of the story is pretty easy to grasp. Soshenko gets to make a little crack at the immutability of Soviet heroes, while at the same time gets to ask that classic question: um, Is it better to be dead in the Soviet world rather than be living? Because when you're living, you can make a mistake. And we all know that to make a mistake under the Soviet system can get you a fate worse than death. So, I hope you enjoyed that one. This next one um, is also pretty fun. And it's called uh, The Man Who Was Purged From The Party. Back in the time of the first purge, they expelled a certain character from the party. He was something in the line of a disabled soldier turned barber, and they purged him for a mundane reason. He drank too much. In general, he had something of a dockhand's nature. He'd pour anything down his throat, and he wasn't always steady on his legs, so that since he was a barber and not an office clerk, he could have inflicted physical mutilations on any of his clients, not to mention spoiling his patient's world outlook and so on. So I think he was probably purged in accordance with the slogan, a rotten apple spoils the barrel. With these words, they expelled him. He wasn't aware of any other things against him. He believed that he'd always lived up to the rules. He had worked energetically, wasn't mixed up in anything in particular, and in general was quite surprised to be purged and puzzled about the reason. Somehow he got very upset. He thought, How many years I held myself back and restrained the outbursts of my nature. How many years, he thinks. I didn't allow myself anything in particular, behaved properly, and didn't permit any excesses. And suddenly, go and shave yourself, and as for drinking, what's wrong with it? He didn't say anything to the purge committee, but thought, oh, so that's how it is. So he went home, got good and drunk, royally stewed, you might say, gave his wife a little thrashing, broke the windows in the porter's lodge, and disappeared for a couple of days. Where he was mooching around, nobody knew— but he came back with his face all battered, his clothes torn, and no coat. And he said to the other tenants, I'm not a bit sorry I was purged, just the opposite. I'm glad I won't have to run into unnecessary discipline anymore. How many years, he says, I controlled myself and ruined my disposition with all kinds of restrictions. This isn't allowed. That's not right. Don't hit your wife. But now that's all over with. Amen. My profession is good under any regime, so I can spit on all you put together. The tenants were amazed at what he said, but he thought he was doing the right thing, and he got plastered again and broke the new window they had just put in at the Porter's Lodge. And in the tenants' cooperative association, he tore all the slogans and health posters off the walls. He even hit the chairman with one poster, which said, Young pioneers don't drink or smoke. Let this guide the grown-up folk. And really, in three days, he let himself go to such an extent that everyone in the house was amazed that such a thing could happen. Suddenly he found out somewhere, or someone told him, that even though they had purged him, he had now, supposedly, been reinstated. It's impossible to describe what happened. In a flash, he sobered up and got himself in shape. He got the tenants together and said, Things happen, my friends. I beg you to forget what you've seen these past few days. Strange as it seems, I think I have been reinstated. And he runs to the proper place and says, Some trick you played on me. First, it's this way, and then about face. Anyone could get confused about how to behave. I didn't know, he says, and in the interim, I did a lot of things I shouldn't have. And now, if you get a couple of reports about me, it's not my fault. It's the circumstances. They tell him, why are you getting upset, comrade? You haven't been reinstated. It's true. One of the comrades said about you, I don't think there's anything wrong with him. He just drinks a little, so you were wrong to purge him. "'but now we can have no more doubts "'with such a picture before us.' "'He says, "'But I didn't know.' "'They answer, "'That means you're not a pure-blooded proletarian. "'Another one would have stayed pure "'as the driven snow under all circumstances, "'but you showed your swinish snout at once. "'Good day.' "'So they didn't take him back. "'And now he sits quietly in his room "'and doesn't drink. "'He keeps thinking that they'll call him in very soon "'and say, "'We see you're living up to the rules. "'You are reinstated.' But they don't call him in, since they know him well now. I've always loved this story, partly because it really illustrates so clearly the impossibility of living up to the Soviet ideal, but also because our main character, who doesn't start out as a very good man by all accounts, ends up becoming a good man, or at least he stops drinking and starts being a much better Soviet citizen. Of course, at that point, they don't want him anymore, and the man will go on hoping beyond hope that someday the party will take him back, when in reality, of course, Zoshenko knows, and and we the readers know, that he'll never be accepted back into the party. Okay, we're going to take a brief music break, and then we'll hear a word from our sponsors. More stories here for you, but before we jump into those, I just thought I'd mention that this podcast is brought to you in part by Theraflu, and uh, Theraflu is a is a product that's really close to my heart because you know when you're in my kind of kind of line of work, sore throats are a big problem, and whenever I do have a sore throat, or even if I'm just feeling a little under the weather, or sometimes if I can't sleep, I'll just uh, I'll have a little Theraflu and all my problems will just dissolve away. So I hope you'll try Theraflu sometime in the near future. They're they're a friend of the podcast, and I hope soon they'll uh, become a friend of you. Okay, this next story is the titular story of the volume, and it is called Nervous People. Not long ago, a fight took place in our communal apartment. Not just a fight, but an out-and-out battle on the corner of Glazova and Borova, Of course, they put their hearts into the fight. The veteran Gavrilich almost had his last remaining shank hacked off. The main reason is folks are very nervous. They get upset over mere trifles. They get all hot and bothered, and because of that, they fight crudely, as if they were in a fog. As for that, of course, they say that after a civil war, people's nerves always get shaken up. Maybe so, but from that theory, the veteran Gavrilich's noggin won't heal up any faster. For example, a certain tenant, Maria Vasilyevna Shiptsova, comes into the kitchen at nine in the evening and lights her primus stove. She always lights her primus about that time, you know. She drinks tea and applies hot compresses. So she comes into the kitchen. She sets her primus stove in front of her and lights it. But, damn it all, it doesn't light. She thinks, why shouldn't it light, the devil? It might have got clogged with soot, damn it. She takes a wire brush in her left hand and is about to clean it, when another lady tenant, Darya Petrovna Kobolina, whose brush it is, looks to see what she took and remarks, "By the way, dear Maria Vasilyevna, you can put the brush back where it came from." Shipsova, of course, flares up at these words and answers, "Please," she says, "Darya Petrovna, go and choke to death on your brush. It disgusts me even to touch your brush, let alone pick it up. Now, of course, Darya Petrovna Kobelina flared up at these words. They began a real conversation. They made a lot of noise, racket, and clatter. A husband, Ivan Stepanovich Kobelin, whose brush it was, appears at the noise. A big, healthy kind of man, even a bit paunchy, but, in his own way, nervous. So this Ivan Stepanovich appears and says, I. I now work exactly like an elephant for 32 rubles and a few kopecks in the cooperative store. I smile at the customers, weigh out the baloney for them, and out of that, out of my hard-earned pittance, I buy myself wire brushes. And I don't care for, that is, I won't permit any extraneous personnel to make use of these brushes. And here a noisy discussion arose once more over the brush. All the tenants, of course, shoved their way into the kitchen, they bustle about. The retired soldier, Gavrilich, shows up too. What's all this noise, he says. And no fight? Immediately after these words, a fight was certified. It began. But our kitchen, you know, is a narrow one, not fit for fighting. It's a tight squeeze. There are pots and primus stoves all around, and now twelve people have shoved their way in. For instance, you want to smack one guy in the face, you land on three at once. It's obvious he keeps stumbling over everything and falling. Even if you had three legs, you wouldn't have a chance of standing up on that floor, let alone if you're a one-legged veteran. But the retired soldier, old scrapper that he was, shoved his way into the thick of things anyhow. Ivan Stepanich, whose brush it was, shouts at him, keep out of this trouble, Gavrilich. Watch out or they'll tear off your remaining leg. Gavrilich says, so I'll lose my leg. But I just can't, says he. I just can't go away this minute. They've just smashed my fighter's pride till it bled. And really, just at that moment, someone gave him one across the mug. Even then, he doesn't go away. He jumps on him. And at the same time, someone hits the veteran over the dome with a pot. The retired soldier falls. Bam! On the floor and lies there, all by his lonesome. At this point, some parasite rushed out for the militia. A cop appears. He shouts, Get your coffins ready, you devils! I'm going to shoot right away! Only after these fateful words did the people come to themselves a bit. They dashed to their rooms. There's a pretty kettle of fish for you, they thought. Why did we, esteemed citizens, get into such a scrap? The people dashed to their rooms, and only the retired soldier, Gavrilich, did not dash. He is lying on the floor, you know, all by his lonesome, and blood is dripping from his skull. The trial took place two weeks after this event, and the people's judge turned out to be a nervous kind of man, too. He gave us another walloping. Why, indeed, did such esteemed citizens get into such a scrap, and over something as trivial as a a little hairbrush? Well, I think the answer is pretty clear there. Something about living cramped inside a communal apartment with at least twelve other people. Twelve other adults, at least, not to mention all the screaming kids, I'm sure. Okay, we got one more for you, and then we're going to have to call it a night. This one's real short, only a single page. Despite this, really is one of the most striking of all his stories that I've read so far. It's called The Merry-Go-Round. My friends, I think we're going to have to wait a while yet before we make everything free. We can't do it. Let's suppose everything is free. But we have no sense of proportion. We think, if things are free, come on, boys, let's grab everything wholesale. Once, during the May Day celebrations, they put up a merry-go-round in our town square. Well, of course, people crowded around, and a certain young fellow happened to be there. Looked like a country boy. What is this? the young fellow asked. You can ride for free? For free! So, the fellow got on the merry-go-round, climbed onto a wooden horse, and rode until he almost died. They took him off the merry-go-round and laid him down on the ground. Nothing wrong. After he caught his breath, he came to. It was okay. Well, is it still spinning? he asked. It's still spinning? I think I'll take another little ride, he said, seeing as it's free. Five minutes later, they took him off the horse again. Again, they laid him on the ground. He was puking like pouring from a bucket. So you see, fellows, we're going to have to wait a while. What a truly incredible story to have made it past the censors of that time. As I'm sure you know, in the Soviet Union, during uh, the era in which Soshenko was writing, every single piece of literature was, before publication, being placed before a review board, making sure that it wasn't morally poisonous, and that it lived up to what the literature of the time was supposed to be. So I'm not sure how this one snuck by, as it very clearly points out some of the issues that a uh, a communist system might bring out. I, for one, love the fact that the uh, the young boy who can't help himself, and when he sees something is for free, he, he takes as much as he possibly can, even though it, it might kill him. I love the fact that he's clearly a country boy, meaning the uneducated or the reason why this system won't work. <sighs> I wonder if that's really Zoshenko's meaning or if he's just poking fun again at the uh, at the readers. Okay, well, that was our episode for the day. I, I really I hope you enjoyed it. I certainly had a great time. Uh, Zoshenko is a pretty interesting writer, and I hope you pick up um, this uh, collection of his works, Nervous People and Other Satires, by Mikhail Zoshenko. And it's translated by Hugh MacLean and uh, Maria Gordon. And like I said, there's almost 30 of his short stories in here, and then a couple actually are, are fairly long, running around 40 to 50 pages, and those can give you kind of a bigger glimpse into Zoshenko and how his mind works and some of the issues that he was trying to bring to light through his writing. Okay, well, it looks like it's coming up on about 4 a.m. here, and uh, I know I'm starting to feel a little sleepy despite the cup of joe. I don't know about you, Ted. How are you feeling? Yeah, he's he's looking tired, too. (laughs) Okay, well think we're going to let you go. We're going to sign off here. I don't know about you, but I'm going to go home. I'm going to tear myself open a nice pack of Theraflu, make some tea. I'm going to curl up in my bed and catch a little shut eye. So we'll see you next week. Same place, same time. This has been War Malarkey with a woundwinkle in time. And as always, sweet dreams, everybody.